Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hugh MacDonald has been a journalist for 47 years, but the most fulfilling day of his professional life came in the summer of 2013, when he watched Andy Murray win Wimbledon for the first time. Hugh had followed the Murray story for years, got to know the family, and became the go-to Andy Murray reporter for media around the world. Around 6pm on July the 7th, he faced the task of distilling Murray's achievement into a 1,200-word news story for the front page of the Herald newspaper in Scotland. Hugh rose to the occasion and wrote a lucid, powerful, and at times deeply emotional piece about the biggest moment in the history of Scottish sport. This is the story behind that article. Enjoy. Okay Hugh, so I'm going to take you back to the summer of 2013. Um, it's quite appropriate that we're sitting in a heat wave just now because it was a beautiful summer back then when Andy Murray won his first Wimbledon title. This podcast is about process and we like to break down how writers piece together their articles or books or long-form journalism. You know, I do want to get into the process, right? but I want to set the context first. I want to talk about Murray kind of pre 2012, 2013, because for the first six or seven years of his career, a lot of people didn't believe that this guy was ever going to win a major title. Mm. It seems almost inconceivable now because he is Andy Murray and one of the greatest Mm. sportsmen Britain's ever produced. But give us a bit of context about these barren years that we endured. Obviously barren in the context of Murray's greatness because he was still winning you know, good tournaments, ATPs and Queens and ATP 500s. But yeah, you're right. The thing that always was the certainty of people that Andy Murray would not win a major. As a guy who followed him about for a lot of his career, I would be assailed quite regularly with people uh, coming up to me unprompted and telling me, this guy will never win a major. And I mean, well, how can you be so certain? I mean, I'm not certain he will win a major. But how can, I mean, you've got to remember that he's, in those days that his worst, Murray was number four in the world. How can somebody who's number four never win a major. It's possible he'll never win a major. But this certainty always always baffled me. The only people that were beating Murray in Grand Slam finals uh, was Novak Djokovic and, and Roger Federer. A fact that exists uh, to this day in 2018, these are the only guys that ever beat. I mean, Murray didn't get to a, a, a Grand Slam final and, and lose to a Cilic or a, a Varenka, great players. I mean, all he lost to was two guys who, if you draw up the greatest players of all time, top five, these two guys will be in it. So I was, I was never convinced he was going to win a, a, a major because that would be, that would be silly as well and almost irrational. But I was always very hopeful that he would. Strangely, given the history since, I was probably most hopeful of the Australian because he, he always played well and it seemed to suit him. The whole vibe, there wasn't the expectation on him. 
that Wimbledon carried, uh, and we all know how many finals he's got to there without winning. It's always thought Australia might be the best shot, maybe the US Open, because he won there as a junior, as we know. Uh, but I always thought Wimbledon was the big hurdle. Like just going back to previous summer, obviously he he gets beaten by Federer on the final. He's in he's in tears, um, and then it's the same narrative being played out again. He obviously makes his major breakthrough, a flushing medal, about two or three months after that. But then then comes Wimbledon in twenty thirteen, and it's it's really in in the context of his career to that point. It's a hugely cathartic moment. Mm. I mean, and this is the point I'm going to try and get to when I'm building up this piece that you wrote, this front page piece. There was so much drama and so much emotion infused in that story because you had these these years of frustration and anger and disappointment among the British public. Murray obviously felt it very keenly himself, but it made that moment all the more poignant almost, didn't it? Well, the great breakthrough, I think, was not the the US Open. It was four weeks after losing to Federer pretty comprehensively uh, in the final. Federer just up in a gear and playing very well. Murray beats uh, Djokovic in an Olympic semi-final and then beats Federer really handily in an Olympic final, which was Wimbledon in all but name. Centre court, up against Federer, split crowd as well, and I thought I thought that was that was a real big victory for him. I think it was a huge victory for him because suddenly he'd won something. Now again, we all know he'd won a massive uh, ATP tournaments, but now he was an Olympic gold medalists. And I always remember him remarking uh, to me that uh, he also won, remember, a, a silver medal uh, in that tournament. Uh, with Laura Robson and uh, the mixed doubles, and I always remember him saying to me, "Well, if I retire now, he says I can all look back in my career and I'm an Olympic gold medalist and Olympic silver medalist." He says, and "There's great athletes that would love to say the same." And I thought then that was a huge breakthrough for him. He'd suddenly got something really tangible for all this striving. He'd also beat Federer in a major final. I know it's not a Grand Slam final, but in a, in a really big final, he'd done it. And I think he he was really pleased about the way that he'd... Remember, it was only four weeks after tears on the centre court. I think he was really pleased at the resilience he'd shown and endurance. And the great Murray thing, the thronness that he'd come back, he'd taken it uh, on the chin, he went down for a count and he got up and started again. And I think he took... I wasn't surprised when he won the US Open. Mm -hmm. I thought, yep. He'll go again. And, of course, he comes to Wimbledon in 2013 with the US Open, the gold, Olympic gold medal behind him, and you're saying to yourself, he's in with a shout here. So you wrote this piece for the front page of the Herald newspaper, not the Herald sports section, but the actual main section of the newspaper, and I'm going to quote from the start of it. A 26-year-old Scot has won the Gentleman's Singles Championship at Wimbledon. The prosaic sentence fails to do justice to what happened on a patch of grass in south-west London yesterday, but there's no apology in this. As Gore Vidal said when felled by a punch from fellow writer Norman Mailer, words fail him. The message is best recounted in the substantial shape of Andrew Barron Murray, a son of Dunblane, who did not just make sporting history at the home of tennis, but spoke to the inspiring story of how a genuine Scottish Tyrell found a way to overcome the odds and prevail after employing a work ethic that screams out in a Caledonian accent. The statistics will show Murray beat Novak Djokovic of Serbia 6-4-7-5-6-4 in 3 hours 9 minutes in centre court, but this does not even hint at the magnitude of the achievement or its wonderful 
beautiful oddity. A Scotsman winning Wimbledon is akin to a Fijian winning the downhill skiing gold at the Winter Olympics and a Muscovite taking the bow as the world's best surfer. Murray is a phenomenon, a sort of Halley's Comet of tennis. However, the comet is visible from Earth every 75 to 76 years. Murray, the world number two, broke a British drought stretching back 77 years to when Fred Perry won the championship. So, I mean, there's, there's so much contained within that, but we've talked a little bit about what you might term as personal limitations in going up against three of the greatest players of all time. But I love the, the allusions to the societal limitations. I think that's a really important point to make because we're both Scottish. We followed Andy Murray's career from, um, from very early and it was endlessly astonishing to us <laughs> that this tiny little nation, which really doesn't have a tennis tradition, had suddenly conjured up not just a player who would be in the top 100 or maybe be in the top 50, but would get to the very pinnacle of the game. Yeah. And get to the pinnacle of the game as well when not in a time where tennis is in the doldrums where, with all due respect to people, maybe a Mark Philippoussis or a Leighton Hewitt or even an Andy Roddick is world number one. He's getting to the pinnacle of the game when, again, name five of the greatest tennis players ever. Djokovic, Federer or Nadal. They've got to be there. You can start throwing in your levers. You can pistol Pete's beyond Borgs. They, they come into the argument. But you can't get past those three. Those three are their definites. So Murray then is operating in, uh, in a level which is extraordinary, uh, unprecedented, uh, where three of the greatest ever are playing in the same era. And and to prevail in those circumstances is, is still brings a smile to my lips. I, I still... Uh, when when Murray was breaking through and, and people were saying, you know, when he was a kid and he was 15 and he was winning the US Open, what were we, US juniors obviously, what were we thinking? We're thinking, well, maybe maybe have a top 20 player here. Maybe have a top 10 here. And then suddenly you end up, when you look back in this sunny afternoon sitting in here, suddenly you went, no, well, actually you've got guys won three Grand Slams, couple of Olympic goals, and a Davis Cup. You go, what? So, yeah, I think what the piece had to do at the beginning of the piece was that it had to, to state how absurd that this was. Mm-hmm. And the best way of saying it absurd was to give a prosaic sentence to say that, you know, a young Scotsman had won the gentleman singles at Wimbledon because it's a sentence that has never really been written before. And in my humble opinion, it's a sentence might never be written again. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was the best way into it, just to be very straight in this and just to say to people, almost emphasising the magnitude of this by the simplicity of the opening sentence. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, I mentioned before that this piece was actually written for the front page of the main section of the newspaper, not for the sports section. And to me, that that felt um, very significant. I remember reading the piece and I remember thinking that it was a very appropriate piece to be in the front page of the newspaper because, you know, we we grew up in journalism and you have this sense of, like, it being the, you know, the, the first page of history and stuff mm. like that. And I, I got a sense of, like, f- from the way that piece was executed that somebody could be looking back in that in 50 years' time, you know, researching an Andy Murray book and, and that would be the definitive kind of document of, mm. of that, that day and that achievement. Was that... What I'm going to ask you is, what made it different? What made that piece different? That it was the front page of the main section rather than the front page of the sports section or rather than an inside feature? The context of it was, I knew this was... I was at a stage in my life 
you know, be a lot late 50s and I'd watched an awful lot of sport in my life and I'd, I'd been interested, as you know, in a lot of history well beyond sport and things like that. I would say I, I was a keen observer of life and, and I lived a bit of it as well and, and I was very well aware of the significance of this watching this, um, not just in, in sporting terms but in human terms as well. Mm. I thought it was a wonderful human story. And the context of it is, again, is that in modern newspapers I was I, I was demanded, a lot was demanded of me that day. Obviously, I had to write a match report to tell people the nuts and bolts of what happened in Centre Court that day. I had to write a, what we call a quotes piece, which was Murray and Djokovic reflecting on the match. And there was other little things I had to do. So what I did with that is I, I, I did all these immediately and, and cleared the way. And I, I very sure, I think the match finished about the back of six, if I, I'm correct. And I had to have all this filed by 10 o'clock. But I, I cleared the, all this, the, you know, the more uh, mundane stuff away quickly. Because I was very concerned, once the, the editor had asked for a, a front piece piece, that this had to be something of substance, you know. Yeah. I, I, I was... This, and this would push me and I had to have a think about it and I had to think about just how important it was and how singular it was um, and that was my two points of departure the first point of departure was to say to the reader without going into backhands, forehands you know, breaks and serve uh, missed opportunities unforced errors etc to say to the, to, to the reader this is why this is special you might not be interested in sport so much you might have no idea about tennis but this is why this is a special day uh, not just in sporting history but in history and how it's, it might impinge or you might empathise with as a fellow human being mm-hmm. yeah I mean, there's a level of responsibility that comes with writing a piece like that as well. I remember when I first started writing about sport for the Herald you know, over 10 years ago now, and um, the late Douglas Lowe was the golf writer, and we used to go along to you know the, the British Open Championship, and you know I would just pitch up and, and write my colour pieces, and that was fine, but Dougie Lowe used to go through like torture that week because he had this enormous sense of responsibility oh, that he was the chief golf writer for the Herald, and he had to be responsible for reflecting these stories in the proper light there must have been an element of that for you it's interesting that you say you're almost kind of clearing the decks of these other pieces because you're like well this is this is the one this is the page of history yeah i knew that this was the one if anybody said to me something's got to be done well this was the one that had to be had to be this what you're talking about is again going back to intro you're talking about a scott has just won the gentleman singles at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Now, people of a certain generation now, because of Murray's, he's, he's repeated it, uh, and because they lived in the Murray era, might, uh, might go, well, you know, it's not too unrealistic, that. What they've got to remember is that the people of my age, and a lot of the readers in the Herald, would have lived all their lives watching Wimbledon and never even expecting a, a, a Scot to, mm-hmm. to compete anywhere near the highest level, never mind winning it, and, and this guy's not a kid on Scott, you know, this isn't a guy that, you know, uh, has got a, a, a Scott's granny and was born, you know, brought up in Florida and went through, you know, or whatever. This is this is a guy who learned to play tennis in a little club in the heartlands of Scotland, uh, in Dunblane, Persia, and he's a Scot to his very marrow. This is a guy who... Uh, uh, you know, in, in another sport in life, you'd expect to be maybe a Rangers centre half or a you know or a 
uh, uh, maybe a lower ranked pro golfer or something yeah. like that. The idea of suddenly having one of the greatest tennis players in the world and winning Wimbledon, I thought, demanded something of me and and, and not... <laughs> yeah, that was the responsibility of the reader without being too pious about it. You're going to say to yourself, you've got to serve the reader up here, with it, whether they like it or not, or whether they... They agree with your piece. You've got to serve them up with something that, that that's you know that's thought out and, and yeah. has has some. Kind of- Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...a substance. I mean, I think that the responsibility comes from the proximity to the story as well. And I mean, it's worth saying that the Herald had probably led coverage of the Murray story from the beginning. And I remember, like in two thousand and five, his first year at Wimbledon, uh, Andy Ghost wrote a column That's for the paper. Right. I mean, I, I don't know how much <laughs> how much involvement eighteen-year-old uh, Andy Murray had at that point, but um, but you know, um, the Herald had documented this phenomenal sporting story from the start. It's worth talking about um, your involvement in the story as well because you built up a strong relationship with the family. You were on good terms with Judy. You knew Andy. You knew Jamie. So all that feeds into this level of responsibility I would Mm. imagine that you feel at that moment. Yeah, it's the funniest thing actually because in in terms of um, professional life, it's the best, without doubt, it's the best day of my life. As a professional, I've been a journalist for 47 years, and that would be the best day, with, without a doubt. But if you stretch it into wider aspects of my life, uh, and I've been very fortunate to have children, and now I've got grandchildren, and of course it doesn't compare to anything like that, mm. but it still comes in pretty high you know, with other things. Yeah. It was just a great day. Yeah, uh, and uh, whilst the responsibility I felt to the Murray side of the story was to get it right about what he was about. That this was not a story about a very young, talented man who has his day in the sun. Now, it was about that. He's talented and it was his day in the sun. But this was about a young man who'd been battered from pillar to post, as we've alluded to earlier, told that he would never win a Grand Slam, vilified generally. It's hard to believe now, but you can remember, you know, every taxi driver you jumped into, where were you? I've just been reporting Andy Murray. Oh, he's a crab. Oh, can you know, smile every now and again. This completely misreading of the character of very shy but agreeable and polite young man, a man of real manners, as we both know, because yeah. I've seen him. So I, I, I felt some responsibility in saying, like, 
this wasn't just like a, a breakthrough win for this kid, and he was a kid to me. This was built on something that maybe we can learn from, and each of us, without again being too uh, sort of sanctimonious about it, we can never play tennis, Mandy Murray. But maybe, maybe we could just maybe take a lesson that you know, there's a, a great Scottish tradition of thrownness. There's a great resilience. There's a great ability to to just get back up and get on with it. Uh, and I, see, I think that's the core of Murray. I think if anybody said to me, what is the core of him? And people would talk about his magnificent backhand or his, his sliced backhand and grass and things like that. I would say, no, his ability to me is to get knocked down and then get back up, and it gets back up stronger. Well, I think, you know, just to quote from your piece again, I think that that picks up on that point. Um, you say, Murray's achievement is almost impossible to appreciate. His torturous journey defies accurate mapping. How does one explain how a hyperactive kid has travelled from playing a synthetics court under malign weather elements of Scotland to taking the trophy on the hallowed grass of the All England Club. How does one speak with any authority about the life experience of a lad who hid under a head teacher's desk as carnage ensued in a douce Scottish town? How does one measure the worth of a young man who left behind kith and kin to travel to Barcelona as a teenager so he could compete at the very top level? How does one measure the heart of a shy personality who was constantly maligned with statements questioning his commitment, attitude and ability to win a major? Again, you're making that point very powerfully about the this ability to to absorb these these blows really from very early in life and make something of himself. Yeah, and and, and remember too that he was thrown into this at an extraordinarily young age, um, without even going back to you know the horror of of of, of being a, a kid on the, in, in Dunblane Primary on that awful day. His progress as a as a tennis player uh, was hugely scrutinised. He was this. I remember interviewing him. I don't know age he was eighteen. 19, where he was really coming up, maybe entering the, the top 20. Obviously going to be a significant player, but really just a gawky big teenager, you know, just a big, nice laddie. And and, and, and I felt then, you know, you're going to meet with some <laughs> some blows from, from the press, and immediately did, you know, the... Uh, you know, the anyone but England fiasco, the constant scrutiny of his attitude, oh, his body language is poor, and he does the, the, the ludicrous one which I always loved and always sort of argued with other fellow colleagues in the press room about, he doesn't play with a smile on his face. Yeah, like Rafa is giggling all the way through his matches, like you never stop yeah, that big uh, grin that Djokovic has all the time, or Federer are chortling like a laughing policeman on match point. You go, this is just stupid. Nobody plays with a smile on their face. Mm. These guys, by their very nature, are playing extraordinary sort of concentration and commitment. So I always felt he was really buffeted by that. I thought it was really interesting that the stress of Wimbledon always had in him. He always come out and, uh, and mouth ulcers mm. on the eve of, of Wimbledon and... and I was always very impressed by the way he handled himself at Wimbledon because I, I don't think you could fully appreciate the pressure he was under until you actually saw the the, 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 the press presence, everything he did. You know, For the listeners, 
there's practice courts Arangi at the top end of of um, of Alden, and a muddy practice session was like I mean you just couldn't get near it. It was like five deep at the fence, just watching them practice. So he was always well aware of of the pressure he was coming to to, to Wimbledon. The reference to Dumblain is interesting. I think how does one speak with any authority about the life experience of a kid who had under a head teacher's desk as carnage ensued in a, in a Scottish town and uh, Dumblain's um, it's a hard thing to talk about I remember when it happened I think I was 16, 17 and I, I didn't really fully appreciate um, really what had happened I didn't put it in any sort of context to maybe 10 years after and there was like a, a programme like uh, on BBC Scotland and everything kind of came home to roost and you know that day when Murray won Wimbledon I, I thought about that you know and I think it's inescapable when you think about Murray's story in these moments that that you know that reference has to be in there, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it's almost impossible to talk about without choking up. But yeah. um, the, one of the most significant things about Murray is his sincerity, right? Because yeah. yeah. you can either and you can take to him or you can leave him. But he's a sincere man, and. Where does he celebrate mm. his his first Grand Slam? Uh, where does he celebrate his gold medal? Mm. Uh, he doesn't go on a, a a bus around London with the rest of the athletes. He doesn't have a a, a, a victory parade in in uh, Glasgow with the rest of the Olympic uh, winners. He doesn't um, uh, sort of hold court um, uh, anywhere. In, in London or whatever, he gets in his motor and he, he drives up uh, from uh, Oxshaw in Surrey and he drives into Dumpling. Mm. And that says it all. I want to move on to talk a bit about process, Hugh. Um, in terms of covering live sport, uh, I think it's fascinating to peel back the layers uh, on it um, it's a really difficult exercise, you know, covering live sport. I remember speaking to um, a former professional footballer years ago who who tried his hand at journalism, and he he wrote a couple of match reports for a national newspaper, and he realised he just didn't have the the temperament to do it. He just couldn't do it because there's a lot of pressure. It's multitasking. It's really tough. Uh, it's very enjoyable and, and exhilarating in a lot of ways, but it's it's really difficult. Now, I, I want to talk about the process of covering. Wimbledon. I want to talk about specifically about this story. A lot of journalists who are in your position sit in the press centre and and watch the TV, and then sometimes they're that's by necessity, I guess, in, in some ways because they're constrained so tightly by their deadlines, and that just has to be the way of it. But that's not your way. You like to be courtside, and I presume you were courtside for for most, if not all, of this match. All of it. All of it. Now you make it. You yeah, to understand to listen understand. You make a trade off in that because it means uh, that all the writing has to be done afterwards. In those days as well, you weren't allowed to take laptops onto centre court. It was it was a betting thing. You know that you could be sending information out in points before it had been. So you weren't allowed. Yeah, now. But I was very keen, uh, as I was with all muddy matches, as you know. To watch every point I could of Murray live, uh, I thought it was incumbent. That was my responsibility, and didn't know what would happen on court. You know, you know, you could see better. Uh, you were part. I felt part of the story if you were on court. 
So I was always very keen to be there, and I watched the whole of that match. I didn't, I didn't move. Uh, I was there with my 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 pen and my <laughs> the old uh, notepad, but never having fully formed or anything like this piece, I was I was so caught up in the moment, so keen on getting the specifics of the match right uh, and what had happened in front of my eyes. And very, very nervous as well. I always remember it was as there was something say Colin Duncan of the Daily Record who, who like me, had followed Andy around the world and were both kind of cynical hacks. Uh, I don't think Colin would, would uh, re- uh, rebel at that statement. We don't get moved by much in, in those terms. Uh, but when Murray won, you know, we're really delighted, you know, it was because we just, because we'd, we'd watched and witnessed something wonderful, and I think we both had great respect for the guy, we liked the guy, you know. I mean, you're talking about the, you're getting down the nuts and bolts in the match while you're there, but you're not just doing that, because you're soaking up the whole <clears throat> atmosphere of the occasion, you're letting it impact on you emotionally, yep. I think that's the trick with live sport, is that you have to, you have to be there, you have to live it, um, you have to, it, it, you know the greatest thing is when you feel that sense of emotional exhaustion at the end of it because you've just been you can't believe what you've witnessed and and I guess that if you put yourself courtside and you don't move from that seat in the press box that's what you're doing absolutely and the other thing about it is we become aware very very quickly at the end of it it's the first time it's ever happened to me um, was that when I went back down to the press room and and, and uh, started making the calls to to prepare the way for. Uh, all the stories and all the copy I had to send and obviously talk uh, to the editor about what he wanted for the, the, the front of the book. I was very aware that I was shaking. Uh, my hands were, were shaking and then shaking to such an extent that it was... It was it was quite... Um, not worrying, but it was, it was quite obvious and it yeah. was kind of like... It was... When I started to type, it was affecting my time, right, and I was, well. I had to, and, and I remember getting up and sort of shaking myself. I knew it was adrenaline, and, and, and shaking, trying to, like a dog, trying to shake this adrenaline out of me, and, and 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 people laughing at that, saying, you know, because I was known, uh, as you know, where we sit at Wimbledon, you're surrounded by you know Swiss, French, and Australian journalists, and I would be known as the Scots guy. Uh, and uh, they were looking at me and saying, oh, and yeah, I was really kind of physically saying, oh, this is, I've been affected by this, you know. Um, uh, but of course, again, you just put that to your back of mind and you just go on because what you've got to do is, <laughs> this is simple, we can talk about process and uh, I mean, structures and things, but basically you, you're sitting down, you've got to fill a newspaper. <laughs> That's the job. The only way to fill a newspaper is to, start hitting the keyboard. So that was, the, I think the good way was to get rid of the mundane stuff, mm-hmm. get the match report out of the way. Then Andy came in for his press conference, get that out of the way, and then take a deep breath and and say, right, this, what did I write for the, for the front? I mean, one of the things that, that I've, I've noticed you do over the years when you're covering live sport is that you don't, you're not a words in the bank um, type journalist where um, some some journalists will um, approach 
a live sporting event with a, with a solid idea of what they want to write um, and then they'll be writing, writing, writing um, throughout the process and then they'll almost like top and tail it as we mm. say at the end so it's kind of neatly packaged up and you know that is a way of doing it and I've done that before many times myself um, because you feel that enormous pressure but you don't tend to do that You, I mean I've seen you sitting with a blank screen um, 45 minutes into a Champions League football match or you know um, halfway through um, a, a huge Wimbledon match involving Murray that, that, that puts a lot of pressure on on you as a journalist but I guess the reason that you want to do that is because you want to um, try and soak this in and then and then let it come out a bit more instinctively I guess yeah I want to explain that what you've got to do the first thing you've got to do of course is you've got to get the copy over in time there's only two things you've got to do as a journalist is write to the length that they want and get it into the office by deadline the clues in the word deadline that's what you've got to do the ways where you approach that can be different from, from journalist to journalist. So as long as you don't impinge on those two imperatives, it's, it's up to each and every individual. I always wanted to reflect what was going on in front of my eyes. I didn't want to ever pad something out, although sometimes you have to because of deadlines. You have to write early stuff and that. But when I could, I was quite comfortable in an uncomfortable way of sitting with a blank screen and almost like that kind of like ticking time bomb. I was okay with that. Yeah. I ended up, I think one of the the, the the things we experience is that there's always a huge fear. Even I'm 63 years of age now and every time I look at a blank page, I'm scared. And the first question that always comes to me is, I don't know if I can do this. That is what happens to me every time, even now. The thing about being in my late 50s, when I do, and, and to a certain extent in, in sports journalism, which I came to fairly late, was that I had a little pilot light in me. And the little pilot light was always on. And the little pilot that always said to me was, when I first said, I can't do this and, and it'll never get done and all that, there's a little pilot light inside of me said, yeah, you can. This is what you do. So I was always, like, um, bolstered by that, that little voice that said, no, that, this is what you do. It's like, it's like a, a, you know, a man who, who's building a foundation and says, I don't know if I can do this. And I say, yeah, this is what I do. I'm a brickie. This is what I do. I, I have a very um, non-romantic view of that process. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think what I do, and I think I know writing's an art and I know it's... Uh, uh, as great aesthetic values for people. But for me, at my level, and I'm not being unduly humble, it's got to be a trade. Mm-hmm. It has to have certain yeah. mm-hmm. disciplines to mm-hmm. it. And I knew I was in command of those disciplines. I knew I could produce whatever that is, a thousand, twelve hundred words. I know I can produce that in an hour and a half to two hours. Mm-hmm. I knew I could do it. Mm-hmm. The job is how well you can do it. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is, you do it to the best of your ability. That's all you can do. In terms of the reaction to the piece, I mean, what what was your personal reaction when, when you wrote it or the day after? Did you think, yeah, I've nailed that piece, I've done it justice? I never, no, I, no. Um, the first reaction to all was writing is, is quite a funny one and I was talking about this recently is that I think it's a shared experience and... I hate writing, I find it very, very difficult, but I love having written. Uh, it's a Dorothy Parker line. And I'm always, when that piece was written and sent, I was immensely relieved that, you know, this mad, frenetic four hours since Murray uh, 
had stopped playing, which probably, it, I mean, at least four and a half thousand words in four hours, at least that. I mean, admittedly, a lot of it quotes and a lot of it the match report, but that's what we, you would have processed in that time. I was just relieved that that was over and I could have a drink and, uh, you know, go up and get a can of juice and a drink of coffee and then just reflect on, well, what a day it was here. You know, Wimbledon was getting slightly dark by that time and there was still the buzz of what had happened. Uh, so I felt that. But I never reflected on the piece at all, really, um, uh, after it was sent. Because the next day it was... <laughs> Uh, another six to eight thousand words because you had yeah. to do, you had to do the follow up. So it, it kind of got lost, and I never really read it uh, until um, you said um, you were going to do the the podcast. I, I, I remembered the intro, mm -hmm. and I remembered the stuff uh, about the spider, which is at the end. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it was very fresh to me. I don't know how I feel about it. I think that like all writers you feel about there's bits that you'd have improved and were a bit clunky. Mm. But generally, I felt it's like great writers thing. But generally, we say, right, um, uh, that's another one I got away with. Mm. I mean, I think uh, from memory, I think you told me like a US newspaper had picked it up and ran ran it. Is that right? Mm. Uh, yeah, various, uh, yeah, and there was various websites picked it up and it seemed to... It was, remember, for me, it was like... <laughs> It wasn't the birth of social media for me, but in many ways it was. It was like uh, it was picked up by a lot of people on social media and, mm -hmm. and retweeted and all that, and it got a great response. And of course, the, the, the not because of that piece, but the, the paper sold so many extra copies that day, and, and uh, yeah, it became yeah, it became quite uh, what's the word conspicuous, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. people yeah. people. Talked about it, but I never went back to read it, I, 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 and I, I don't say anything as if I, I just said I'll let it lie and, and, and never really got back to reading about it. Although people did remark on certain aspects of it, um, I, I think did, did one of your friends frame it for you? Yeah, one, uh, um, yeah, and and and, and uh, he put it in a frame, but I, again, it's it's not something like that would sort of like you come into my house and. There's, Framed stuff of mine. <laughs> no, I'm not very. I'm yeah, not but very. It does say it's, yeah, but it did seem to make something that other people, reaction. other people reacted well to it, which I'm pleased about. Uh, obviously, I'm, I, I am. But but the way the journalistic world is, I suppose there's a bit of you know that's you know and it's a good thing. It's a self-protective thing that. Well, that was just Thursday's story. Let's move on and, and and do it. So actually, the only time I did come around to it was when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about it and I went, oh God, I better go back and read this to see what I, can, what I talk about. Although, I, again, I remembered a couple of things about it. Thanks to Hugh for doing this interview. Hugh's piece is in the show notes to this episode. You can also find it by googling Murray the History Man. And if you want to read more of Hugh on Murray, check out his 10,000 word ebook Murray Ball. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.